From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Jenna Spinelli. And welcome to the season three finale of Democracy Works. We made it to the end of another school year, guys, getting ready to take a summer break. And uh, we're going to close with some excellent questions we've received from our listeners all across the country and around the world. Yeah, what fun. Okay. I guess you're going to work so. us really hard before we go on vacation. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Shouldn't you have given us these questions <laughs> in no, advance? You know, I? I never give our guests a question, so why would I treat you guys any different? <laughs> um, well, I can think of a lot of reasons, <laughs> but <laughs> let that go. <laughs> Well, we'll, worry. we'll we'll talk about exactly. that later. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. So I want to start with a, a pretty fundamental question. And, and this did come in um, from, from one of our listeners named Andy, uh, who lives in Washington, D.C., but grew up in, in the U.K. But it's it's really indicative of something that I've heard and maybe you guys have heard, too, as you're, you're talking with people about the show and our institute more broadly. And that's, is the United States a democracy? Uh, there are two kind of tracks that our, our questions took with this. One is is kind of a, an age-old argument that the U.S. is not a democracy, it's a republic. And the other is that uh, th- the U.S. is more of a plutocracy than a democracy. So I don't know which of those you want to start with or, or you know, <coughs> which which direction to go in, but well. those were the two tracks that it took. So, yeah, no, just, just kind of jumping right in here. No, no softballs to start. <laughs> no, you know, just, just getting right to it. Well, there's a lot in that. Uh, you know, I, I, I do have a, a, a queued up rant about this. Oh. Um, I actually— How it, long is that going to take? It won't take long. <laughs> I, I, and, and then I'll lead the plutocracy. How could you have a queued up ramp if you didn't know the question? Because I've ha- heard this question before ah, and, it, okay. it, and it annoys me. Um, I, I'll leave the plutocracy question for you, which I actually I, think I is just a like to note question. that the question does not annoy me. I think okay. it's a good question. <laughs> well, it's, it's more the idea, the idea that we are not a democracy, we are a republic, is one that I hear frequently from people. Um, Usually, usually on the right, and um, and I find it to be a really uh, it's 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 denigrating the democratic dimension of our government. It's acting as if um, the degree to which we are democracy doesn't matter or isn't relevant. And so, you know, my argument or my response is, you know, to say we're not a dem- democracy, we're a republic, is similar to saying. It's not a saltine. It's a cracker. I mean, it is it is a distinction within um, a, a democratic form of government. It's a meaningful distinction. But the idea that because we're a republic, it is not appropriate or, or proper or correct to call us a democracy is fundamentally and and irretrievably wrong. Right. Look, this central <laughs> this central thing in a democracy is that the people rule. Right. And uh, the framers looked at many direct democracies, especially which had existed in ancient Greece, for example, and some of what they were seeing in some of the uh, some of the colonies at the time, uh, states at the time, and um, felt very strongly that direct democracy was not going to work in the United States, especially not going to work as the country grew larger, which is something that they anticipated geographically and and population wise. But, you know, it's it's really worth noting that Article one in the Constitution is the Congress Mm -hmm. and that all powers and that all 
all, that many of the powers are essentially given to the Congress. Congress shall have the power too, and they go into taxing, they go into war, they go into everything. Most of the powers are put in the legislative branch. And that's because the framers understood well that you know, public participation was a number one issue that the the new government had to be based upon a foundation of public consent and public rule. Well, not to mention the first three words, we the people. We right? the people. On the other hand, they also had an acute understanding of the need to protect minority rights and it was and that the uh, that majorities can be tyrannical. And and let's face it, fear and of, of a of a of a mob Mobocracy, right. right, and so they wanted to temper democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, we're absolutely a democracy. We're a flawed democracy. Many things in our democracy don't work as well as they need to. But but here's here's one way I, I have of thinking about the fact that we are actually a democracy, and uh, and most of my scholarly work has been in studying the states. You know, if you look at the states that are controlled exclusively by a Republican Party, and you look at the states that are exclusively controlled by the Democratic Party, you see diametrically different kinds of policy agendas. You see Republican states that have put up all kinds of efforts to virtually eliminate uh, abortion. You see resistance to providing Medicaid coverage for poor people. I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. You see something very different in states that are controlled by Democrats. This is a level of responsiveness that you need to see in a democracy, that who you elect matters and that the election of one party representing one set of interests and concerns in a country, in, in, in a uh, populace, are going to lead to a different set of policies than, than, than Elections than have consequences. Elections have consequences, and they have to in a democracy. All that said, it is somewhat of a plutocracy. Yeah, I think We so. do know that money That's matters, and money, matter, money matters a great deal. Mm-hmm. Part of why it's flawed democracy. Right, and, and you could argue, I think, that you know, with the extension and the, and the entrenchment of inequality, at a level that we haven't seen since the 20s. Yeah, since since the, the Gilded Age and something right. we, we talked about actually right, exactly. earlier this year with mm-hmm. Chris Whitco, our colleague here right. at Penn yeah. State. And that's absolutely evidence of how the democracy has been uh, somewhat hijacked mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Uh, by those with uh, the most means. That's, that's a much harder question, I think, and, and, yeah. uh, uh, and what to do about it is a harder question. Um, kind of tied into that, uh, we, we received actually several good questions from a listener named Bonnie in California. Uh, she asks, what are the key government characteristics that make a country a democracy and that the country and its citizens need to protect in order for democracy to be maintained? Uh, that is a great question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Robert Dahl and his kind of um, characteristics. And, you know, I mean, I think we can pretty, uh, you know, um, confidently lay them out. But, yeah, so you have fair rules, right? Uh, and free open, and fair elections, fair elections, open open ability to to um, to participate, um, freedom of the press, um, you know, civil rights. Um, uh, <laughs> the the uh, well, a lot of this starts to actually sort of meld over into the area of what we think of as a liberal democracy as opposed to just fair, a democracy. Fair, but I mean, a liberal with a small L, meaning a, a, a democracy that also is protective of rights, right. of, and per, of, the of individual right. rights mm-hmm. and of minorities. Because, you know, a lot of uh, these new populist kinds of movements that we're seeing uh, in Europe, for example, have a real authoritarian kind of streak to them. 
which doesn't respect liberalism, right. individual rights, freedoms of the press. You know, we saw the closing in one of our podcasts, the closing of the university in Hungary. Right. You know, these are illiberal actions, well, but uh, they are. Orban of Hungary uh, says, I'm presenting a model of illiberal of democracy. illiberal democracy right but 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 the and so we we tend to mix them up a bit and uh, because ours is a liberal democracy and we value you know, we tend to value both both elements of that but I think what what Chris had said there certainly about free and open elect fair elections uh, about a about a free press uh, about access you know that for different kinds of candidates like that candidates can have can what's the word I'm trying to find uh, that the uh, that anybody can run that they're mm-hmm. that, right. that the open access the open to access run, to, yeah. to to running for office. Uh, yeah, and it's 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 no coincidence that these are themes that we've talked about and will continue to talk about on this show. They you know come up again and again and right. are not settled issues by any means. Right, no. and some are like more unique to our system than others because we have a system of separated powers, but other democracies do not. Well, some kind of check on power. But some kind right. of check yeah. on power is essential, right. something that, yes. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, behind that question is... Some sort of dispersion of power, too, yeah. where power cannot be concentrated. And, and... But but every one of these d- dimensions has been, in the last, say, five years, become more um, threatened, more... Um, more uh, under siege. That seems a little strong. Yeah. So, so actually, Bonnie had had a follow up to that, and, and she phrased it as, "Which of these elements are most at risk right now?" Right. I, think, I think that's that's a good way that's to think a, about that's it. That's a better way to say it. Thank you, Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, you know, obviously, that depends on the country, right? And um, you can you can uh, and and it's a question of degree. But when you call uh, the press fake news when you don't like it and when you refer to the media as the enemy of the people that um you know irrespective of what you do those words matter and those words undermine what is um in, um unarguably uh, a fundamental feature of a free and open and see i look at it a little society. bit differently I, I i agree with what you're saying and you know calling the press the enemy of the people is is <laughs> Undemocratic, to say to say the least. On the other hand, the press in the in the United States, in many ways, has never been stronger and never been doing right. better work, and actually is you know doing quite well, maybe in part because of the attacks yeah. on mm-hmm. it. But I, I would say that what really concerns me right now, what I'm seeing in our country, is the gaslighting and well, let me put this in two ways. One is the continuing. Uh, erosion of trust in political institutions of all types and the way this is now expanding to other institutions. So constant attacks on the FBI, constant attacks on the judiciary, constant attacks on the on on uh, what was I thinking about recently? Well, there's almost nothing actually in our in the political system now that's not being attacked in some way as a partisan institution. Except the military. The, the Fed is now a mil- well now the military as well too because right, now the military is uh-huh. being brought in uh, as as campaign props mm-hmm, in ways that mm-hmm. they never were before. So this this concerns me quite a bit because I think if we don't trust institutions, if we don't trust leaders, then uh, then it's very difficult for democracy to operate. But I take it a step further. I'd say the general erosion of confidence in facts and truth 
is really disturbing. Uh, you know, the, the area it's most easy to see it in is in climate change. Uh, but, you know, I think the president, didn't he actually, I don't know if this was recent or not so recent, say, you know, what you're seeing is not true. Don't believe what you're mm-hmm. seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is, and, and he does that all the time. And I think this is actually really, really disturbing because I don't know how we have political debates, how we actually make efforts to resolve longstanding problems if we can't agree on what we're all seeing in front of our faces. Yeah. The only other thing I want to just briefly mention is the concerted and and fairly longstanding and strategic effort to undermine voting rights in in the United States. I think the fact that this is, you know, I'm not... It happens to be the case right now that this is uh, driven by Republicans. If it were the case that uh, the the shoe were on the other foot and Democrats would uh, benefit by, you know, um, constraining, you know, people's access to voting, uh, they would probably be, be doing it too. So I don't want to make this completely partisan, but the fact is that um, that poor people, uh, especially, are um, their, the value and their ability to vote is being undermined, and it's a fairly systematic effort, and that is, you know, fundamentally undemocratic. All right, and um, so kind of following up to that, uh, thinking about the, the notion of, of minority rights you guys were talking about earlier, um, we got a question from Josh in North Carolina who asked, uh, in a democracy, is there ever an issue that's truly settled? And that he, he specifically mentioned our conversation with Crystal Sanders and Erica Frankenberg about school segregation and, and the Brown decision and how you know things have were, as Crystal and Erica said, on on the path to, if not had had in some places reverted back to the kind of pre-Brown standards, and so yeah. I think he was thinking about you know it what what place is it or you know if this is truly what the people want, uh, you know how do how do these things ever kind of get settled? We're probably not going back to prohibition, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and we're not going to go back to child labor. We're not going to go back to women not having the vote. I mean, there are some things that are just over, right? But but the issue of how different races, um, different ethnicities, different classes, different religions all uh, live together in some kind of uh, peaceful harmony is never going away. So, so some of those questions or some of the issues that are uh, you know, people who think about um, Brown versus Board of Education as being over and done with, you know, those aren't going to go away. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I'm I'm also just thinking that the, you know, the the whole norm breaking sort of uh, approach of the Trump administration is teaching many of us a lesson that things that we thought were settled are not necessarily settled, uh, like NATO, <laughs> you know, and support for support for democracies abroad as opposed to support for autocracies abroad. And and so a lot really is in flux. Uh, I do think many that civil rights struggles are continuous. Uh, I don't think they're ever settled. I think that you, you move from one issue to another. Uh, Maybe one things, plateau to another. Right, and that yeah. things backslide. Uh, <laughs> and, and so many of those kinds of issues are, are not ever going to be settled. I mean, we we are always changing as people, right? So we would expect that, you know, thoughts and opinions and and how these things are structured would not be settled either. 
And, you know, new, new cohorts of, uh, well, generational change is important. And so, uh, you know, a generation brought up in the context of, say, one sort of political struggle is going to differ from one that's brought up in, a, in another time. And the context changes, right? I mean, we've, we've learned or I've been educated um, about how important um, the, the feeling of being threatened by economic insecurity matters in terms of people's political perspective and how they approach politics, how that changes. So, you know, all these issues, it's easy to be liberal when everybody's living high on the hog. It's easier anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, Michael, you mentioned NATO before and some of these kind of geopolitical organizations. Um, Danny in Vancouver actually asked about those things specifically. Uh, You know, what do you think the EU looks like in 50 years? And and generally, what do you think is the future for geopolitical organizations like EU, NATO, the UN, those kind of things? What a good question. (laughs) Yes, but one, I don't know that I feel really I that well qualified. I'm perfectly to, uh, willing to pass to comment on. Uh... You know, I mean, where are the incentives? You know, are the incentives, and, and particularly the economics incentives, such that it pushes people towards uh, these kind of consolidations, these kind of organizations? I, I expect that over. Over the long term, that's probably true. But yeah. that's all I would put my ha- hang my hat on. And approach it from a somewhat different perspective. I mean, so he's asking sort of a long-term right. kind of question. And I, I think over the long term, uh, climate change is going to change a lot about the world. And we haven't even begun to get a handle on what that means. So we're going to have refugee problems like we've never seen before as some of these lower-lying countries that are disappear. many and poor just dis- disappear. What is that going to mean for international organizations? I don't know. But these are these are sort of pressures uh, that, you know, long-term planning is not... The U.S. military spends a lot of money actually on long-term planning about, about some of these kinds of issues. Uh, and then there are other areas where we're going to have to, you know, rethink completely international uh, cooperation. I was listening to a story, I guess, on NPR the other day about how far ahead of us the Russians are in icebreakers for the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And that as climate change opens up all these new seaways, suddenly you're going to have this whole huge, vast expanse of the earth that's going to be open and going to require new kinds of arrangements and new kinds of... So, you know, my, my response to some of these is that the... Uh, to a question like that, which is really interesting, is that, you know, the short-term pressures aside, uh, there are major long-term changes coming that are going to uh, both threaten many existing institutions and offer opportunities for new ones. You know, that's that's interesting you should raise the question that way because as you were talking, I thought the point about climate change is really uh, smart and, and worth making. But, uh, you know, it's not at all obvious or clear or even... Um, <laughs> even likely that um, these st- strong pressures towards the necessity of international cooperation are actually going to lead to that, right? I mean, you could you could make just the case that these strong incentives are going to push nations to be more, uh, you know, more focused, more nationalistic, more, you know, I'm going to get mine, you know, and, and things not working out well at all. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, I mean, one of the one of the points that Jan made when he was here was uh, just talking about how countries respond differently to these influxes of uh, mm-hmm. refugees, mm-hmm. and the ones that are most resistant to them actually, and are the ones that tend to really have these sort of populist uh, kinds right. of pressures that build up, and you won't find the same kind of support for international institutions within these. Right. within these right. governments. Yeah. Well, and you but s- others aren't responding that right. way. Right, right, so. exactly. So yeah. I just don't I just don't think yeah. we know. All right, so back to the U.S. Um, we we got several questions in response to our episode with uh, Timothy Schaefer on the, the idea of civility. It's kind of been been a hot topic in, in the news these days, a, a lack of civility in politics, et cetera, as we talked about on that show. Uh, but Mitch in New York specifically asked... Um, with so many Democratic presidential candidates calling for a return to civility, how can they show us that they're working to accomplish that? In, in other words, how do they make it about what they do rather than what they're saying or what they're not doing? Well, I think they would tell you to judge them by their debates and how they interact with one another during these campaigns. Yeah, I agree I with mean, that. I mean, isn't that... I yeah. mean, you know, if, if they are able to... Um, Acknowledge when their, um, you know, their opponent makes a good point, or you know, has, um, uh, you know, that their opponent is a responsible person who loves their country and who, um, you know, um, is out to sees their point of view as being truthful. Yeah, wouldn't it be neat to see them listen to one another? I mean, I, I, I've been thinking about this recent uh, flap with uh, Joe Biden changing his position on the Hyde Amendment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the cynic in me wants to say uh, he's a flip-flopper and so he sees the Democratic base moving in a certain direction. But another, which is not inconsistent with some of what I've read about behind the scenes on this, is that he learned that, you know, he's listening to his opponents, he's listening to his staffers, many of whom are younger, uh, pointing out that the Hyde Amendment is a way that restricts abortion access, which many pro-choice people see as just health services to those with less resources, and that he changed his mind because he came to understand there's something, you know, if you can accept that, there's something kind of kind of neat about that. Well, you know, I mean, the the it is, it is an... Um universal feature of politics that there are very few choices that are that are without a moral dimension and that are determinative by moral mm-hmm. dimension, right? Yeah. There's always a kind of self-interest and a kind of feeling like this is the right thing to do. And it's always difficult, but... Well, and I'm putting aside whether I think the Hyde Amendment is a good idea right, or I not. I just... How we got there. I, I get yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, all I'm saying is that, you know... <clears throat> It, it is it, politics works better when um, politicians and all of us are able or willing to um, give that benefit of the doubt to yeah. our opponents. Certainly, we know we're going in the wrong direction if, at the first debate, they start giving each other nicknames. <laughs> well, I <laughs> you think know, because you know, if you do think back to those Republican debates uh, in 2016. Uh, this notion of, I think, civility really did start to kind of come apart mm-hmm. in part during those debates. Well, and, and, you know, and that's one thing that, you know, um, that I don't think there is a um, a counter and what I would call a legitimate counter argument to the fact that um, Donald Trump's behavior is undermining democracy. You know, yeah. I mean, calling people names 
like you know somebody on the fifth grade, fifth grade playground is just not responsible democratic behavior. Period. Paragraph. Well, it's not civil, I guess. By well, what but we're I, I, I think it undermines yeah. our democracy. I'd go farther. Yeah, I mean, I think though there is a, a, a distinction that that Tim drew in our conversation with him, and I know other other scholars doing this work have pointed this out that. You know, democracy is more than what happens in in Washington. So there's kind of this notion of civility among the general public on on you know on your block with your neighbors. What have but there, you? That's I think, different. Yeah, but there I think we see civility all the time. I mean, I think towns and communities and school districts are able to govern themselves uh, around often intense issues. We just don't hear about it. Well, I also think because it's, it's not that fun. <laughs> plus, it's also just harder to be a jerk to people face to face and you and people who, you know, you're going to see in the grocery store next week, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that is just human nature. Um, and so I don't know. I Whereas mean, it is super easy and right. perhaps even encouraged to be a jerk to someone on Twitter, uh, as, correct, as correct, Trisha correct. Roberts Miller yeah. talked about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, OK, so. Uh, going back to immigration for a minute, uh, Mike in Illinois brought up the notion of civics tests. There's, you know, uh, people who want to become U.S. citizens have to have to take a civics test. And he's wondering um, what you guys think about requiring those tests for Americans more broadly. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. But I also but I do think that um, our. Uh, our nation, our society um, has done an absolutely appalling job uh, with regards to civic education. And um, it is part, it is maybe exhibit A in terms of how our society has taken our, our democracy for granted. And if we want to restore or to you know, rebuild our democracy, we cannot, I think, do that successfully without um, you know, taking a serious look at how we educate Sure. Ourselves. That's not how I interpreted the question. Though. I, don't I, I mean, I agree with you. Civics education would be a great thing to do. Kids ought to be learning a lot more younger about how to influence the political system, how to be involved, what it means. What it means all to be that. a Democrat. Yeah. But I, I actually am really resistant. I hear this from my students all the time and have for as long as I've been teaching, which is much longer long, than long you can probably time. tell on the ra- on a podcast. <laughs> but you know, when I when I would ask students, why aren't you going to vote? And an answer that I would frequently get is, I don't know enough. You know, feel knowledgeable enough in the sense that there's some sort of knowledge bar that you need to reach in order to be able to exercise your full democratic rights, which come to you as a citizen, not necessarily as a smart citizen mm-hmm. or a knowledgeable citizen, but as a, as a citizen. And I think that, for example, political parties through history, uh, opinion leaders, uh, people you look up to, there are all kinds of ways where you can make reasonably reasonable political decisions which without a high level of information about things. That's and, what that's one of the things that parties are for. That right? parties are for, exactly. And so I'm I'm always resistant to ideas that say that only the people that know a certain amount ought to be allowed. Now I don't know that that may be going beyond what the questioner was asking, but I, I tend to hear that in, in some of these. But democracy is open to everybody. And even if they can do no more than to go into a voting booth and say to themselves, you know, 
I've always done pretty well under the Republicans, but not under the Democrats. So I'm going to vote for the Republican, even though I don't understand the issues. I actually think that's completely consistent with good Democratic, good Democratic governance. You also need to have people that are really informed, but not everybody has to be really informed. Uh, so uh, anyway, so, you know, anything like that actually starts to smell to me like a literacy test sure. for voting. Uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing we all know from our experience as college instructors is that when whenever someone is confronted, whenever students are confronted with a test, they tend to learn what's on the test and kind of ignore other things that might also be important but are not on, on a particular test. Well, nor do I feel really that I'm qualified to tell people what should be important to them right. when they're voting. Right. It may be as simple as wanting as a woman wanting to be represented by a woman. And what is where where are we to tell them that's not a legitimate reason? Uh, one last listener question, and then, then I have a couple to round things out here. Uh, Carolyn in Virginia asks, uh, what are the costs and benefits of impeachment from a democracy perspective? Well, that is a good question. Uh as opposed to from a political perspective, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where, you know, Democrats, I think, are spending too much time publicly, at least, <laughs> talking about whether or not they think democracy is good or bad for themselves uh, politically. Uh, I don't think it's a very different uh, calculus. Right? You don't? No, because I think the argument is or the question is, what's worse for democracy? Um, the following through on um, you know the standards of um, of you know of what has been given to the Congress as as its responsibility constitutional responsibilities and will that end up um, leading to the reelection of Donald Trump which one is worse for democracy I think that impeachment like much of what was set up in the Constitution was not designed with political parties in mind. And I thought Charlie Dent spoke about this quite eloquently, actually, that where you now no longer have a separation of powers, you have a separation of parties. Mm -hmm. And so everything is seen as a partisan conflict between the two, rather than as the framers quite explicitly intended for things to be, for politics to be a battle between institutions controlled by different kinds of factions and interests, not controlled by similar political parties. Mm -hmm. And so, so uh, impeachment, which was intended <laughs> as, you know, the Constitution was designed so that the Congress had the final showdown powers in any, sh in any showdown with other branches of government. Congress always had the power to impeach. They can impeach a justice. They can impeach an executive. It's something that neither of those other branches has that kind of power. And so it is critical to our system of separation of powers that the Congress can use this to uh, remove a president that they feel is abusing power. You know, we, we tend to criminalize impeachment in this country and think of it only in criminal terms. Uh, but they didn't think of it in criminal terms. It was political terms. It was presidents that are abusing their power for the most part. Uh, but the way it's become wrapped up in political powers, I think, has made impeachment a very difficult tool for for the Congress to use. And in that way, I think that's that's a bad thing for democracy because I think our democracy requires that Congress have this tool that it be able to use. 
Uh, I also think, let me add one other thing about this. The way the Democrats, some Democrats have set this up concerns me about how democracy should operate. And that's where they say, well, we don't have any Republican support, so therefore we can't be doing this. But from a deliberative perspective, part of the point of, of something like an impeachment hearing is to bring the country around. Uh, now, this is something the first two years of the Trump administration were, I think, a real loss in that there were almost no public hearings about anything that had gone on with the administration. But those public hearings are an essential part of democracy. It's how we deliberate. It's how we learn. And it's how we come to change our minds. And so I think the absence of these kinds of hearings on the part of the Democrats uh, is short-circuiting a discussion that we need to have. It's kind of like Nancy Pelosi would like the discussion to occur or the change in minds to occur before the discussions happened. And that's not going to happen. I don't I, I agree with everything you just said, but I don't think it changes the calculus in terms of democracy, because if if that all goes through in a way that is constitutionally appropriate and legitimate and and that process makes it more likely, improves the chances that Donald Trump gets elected and thereby makes it more likely that Democrats lose the House is is it is that enough to hang your hat on that we were supported we were well, supporting I, I just, democracy I I don't think our position on democracy should be that it's good if Donald Trump is 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 not elected and it's bad if he is I think I think I mean there, Donald the real, Trump is the nominee of the Republican party if he is the nominee yeah, of the Republican party you know that's what we have an election for I I take the point but I also think that I mean there are a lot of people and I would include myself in this group that uh, think that uh, Donald Trump is a threat to American democracy. Well then the issue is not the impeachment the issue is the election. Exactly. But I don't see how you separate those. And that's and that's the argument that's going on right now. And I don't I'm not taking a position. I'm just saying that the argument that's going on in the Democratic caucus right now is not that different from the one that's going on in my head. But that's not how the framers envisioned. Fair. Democracy. I agree. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, lots to talk about there. Maybe we'll have to find find a guest to have on in the fall to, to talk more about this, depending on, on you know where things are. Uh, and if, if folks would ever... Let's get Lawrence Triba. Right. Uh, lots of framers uh, references this time. So I've often thought that if folks wanted to play a drinking game to our podcast <laughs> every time you mention <laughs> Hamilton or Madison or the Federalist Papers or whatever, that would that they, would be a good one to play. They were really, really smart. Well, and Broadway made uh, you know the yeah, framers cool exactly. again. So. Right, right. All right. So I have two questions for you guys to to close things out here. Um, you know, we have had a lot of heavy hitters, a lot of really smart people on the show um, this year and, and going all the way back to, to the beginning last year. Uh, is there is there a guest or a, a conversation that we've had that's made you rethink something or change your mind about about a topic that, that we've covered? So so I, I don't know if, it, if it's uh, changed my mind, but it has... Um, reminded me or uh, reinforced something that I guess I knew but had not thought about a lot. Uh, we've had a number of people who have um, been or have talked about protest or have done protest, right? We had Tommy Smith in the in the early part. We had the guy Joyce, from... Uh, the, oh, Serge Popovic from Serbia. From Serbia. And the guy from Syria, Alhamza. Oh, uh, Abdulaziz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what struck me in, you know, about all those people is that they weren't 
necessarily the, the smartest or the bravest or the strongest or anything else. They were just ordinary people who found themselves in this situation that was just intolerable, unacceptable, uh, that they thought was just fundamentally wrong. And um, they responded to it. And they didn't, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. I think it is really astonishingly impressive that both in Ser Serbia and Syria, uh, these two people who didn't know what they were doing were able to outfox this security apparatus that was longstanding, had infinite resources, and was without morality, right? But, I mean, I think it's a fundamentally democratic point, right, that, that um, anybody can... Um, in, in circumstances, find themselves in, 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 uh, where they're, they're forced to respond with courage and um, uh, a sense of responsibility that they didn't know they had or could, right? And I just think that's a, a very impressive thing. And I've thought about that guy from Syria a lot and just wondering, would I be willing to put my life on the line like that? But anyway, that's the one thing that I take away. I think Joyce Ladner in that mm -hmm. context, too, is yeah, a yeah. civil rights activist. Yeah, that's true. I, I've uh, had some of the same reaction over uh, many of the guests that we've met who are who some, some of whom put themselves at at risk. Uh, yeah, I'll answer a little differently. I thought that the whole sequence we did on uh, democracies at risk in other countries, uh, it, it, it's, it taught me a lot. It also reminded me that, you know, heading into the 2016 election, uh, I, as along with many others, was quite myopic about what was going on in the U.S. and, and that's a mistake we shouldn't make again. Uh, did not really understand many of the forces at work at that election, in that election. And I think that was uh, because I was not paying enough attention to what was going on in Europe. And, and now I tend much more to see the Trump presidency as part and parcel of something going on around the world. Uh, I was especially struck uh, and also just because uh, – so sometimes with me what, what really sets some guests apart from others is I really want to eat their book up rather than just you know get through it or skim it or whatever I need to do to, to prepare. Uh, I thought that Norm Eisen's book was just beautiful and really enjoyed reading it and it reminded me of the role that ambassadors and members of the State Department play in promoting democracy abroad, often in very clever ways, often in very risky ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we kind of lose lose touch with that. Um, I, I also, just let me mention one other. I mean, uh, I thought Jonathan Haidt was just fascinating to have around, around campus for a couple of days. Uh, one aspect in particular of Jonathan Haidt, I actually have to say, I don't remember if he talked about it on the podcast or if it was in other, other conversations, but you know, some of Jonathan's work on diversifying ideologically the academy uh, is something that I had actually thought of as not that big an issue, uh, and he has me thinking about it quite differently. Uh, that ideological homogeneity in, uh, around universities, uh, especially I think in some of these smaller liberal arts schools, is actually kind of insidious and incestuous and, and uh, potentially anti-intellectual and not very helpful. So, uh, so that. And, uh, you know, our discussion with Sarah Koenig, I just learned a lot about the criminal justice system in listening to her podcast, as well as uh, the research that I did from 
in talking with her about what was going on in Philadelphia. I didn't know anything about this. But I could go on. I learned something from all these guests. I mean, this is what's fun for me about, about doing the podcast. Other than spending the time in with, here with, with you guys and the, the, with our, uh, our people team from WPSU. WPSU. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, the guests really are, really do learn something from all of them. Uh, so, Michael, you mentioned Norm Eisen's book, and I, I wanted to, to close here. You guys might remember, or maybe you blocked it out. Last summer at this time, we did a, a summer reading list where we all read a bunch <laughs> of books like about democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we did not do that this time. I think we're all pretty happy about that. But I did want to ask if there is a book that either of you have read uh, since we did that show last year that has stuck with you or that you think folks should add to their reading lists this summer. I'm going to, to answer that in a in a in a left-handed way. I actually um, the the book that I have been coming back to a lot in my own uh, thinking is uh, Wendy Brown's book, which is just now coming out, right? And that's she she was on the podcast, but um, you know there is this you know actually you know at least marginally deserved. Uh, slap of uh, political theory as being a bunch of people talking about minutiae regarding dead white people, dead white men. And, and uh, you know, like I say, I think that's it, it not, it doesn't come out of the sky, right? But what Wendy Brown has done is used a form of analysis to make sense of where we are in a way that you can't do with uh, you know um, you know some kind of logical regression or quantitative data, she's just making a, she's making a case about how we think right now and how that um, that ideology um, impacts everything that we are all doing and thinking and saying and wanting, and I just think it's really it just speaks to the value of the discipline of political theory, but it also speaks to just how how thoughtful and smart her book is. Yeah, and as someone who is not a political theorist, I found it very. Um I won't say easy, but I found it, you know, at a level that that I could understand and comprehend and and make sense of her her arguments. Yeah, so I would put a shout out for that. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure why uh, a praise of political theory requires that we denigrate <laughs> uh, social science and all that it has uh, taught us. I'm but, not denigrating. But, I'm but just that's saying okay. It's like... <laughs> I would say of the of the books that came up through the guests this year, the one that really struck me. I mentioned Norm Eisen's book already, which I just thought was terrific. Uh, I also thought the book on uh, demagoguery and democracy by uh, Patricia Roberts Miller was a beautiful short read, uh, a type of kind of short, tight argument. You don't see all that often. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, but from reading I've been doing outside that I think people might be interested in in understanding contemporary politics are two books in particular that really come to mind. The one is a book by Lillian Mason called uh, Uncivil Agreement, uh, which talks about how American political parties today are polarized along social identity lines. Uh, it's really a quite interesting take that helps us understand why politics these days so much seems like a uh, battle to the death between two groups of people that can't stand one another. Uh, and her argument, it has a lot to do with the way that we're much less likely in our social identities to be split across different political parties. People within your party are more like you than mm-hmm. they used to be, and people in the other party are more unlike you. How do you answer that question, Joe? 
Yeah, so um, this is maybe a bit of a spoiler alert for something coming in the fall, but um, I read a book called Truth in Our Times by David McCraw, who is the deputy general counsel for the New York Times. He also has uh, what what college-age Jenna would have described as a dream job, uh, kind of you know, being, being you, a Wait, in wait, wait. I thought, this was, you thought this was your dream <laughs> Hold job. Hold up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, yeah. Never mind. So to continue, it is it it it's a memoir, I, I suppose, but a, a really obviously well. He he writes from a lot of experience um, about some of the the libel issues and and how the the he and his team work to keep reporters safe when they travel abroad about the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and I actually interviewed David about it uh, when I was in New York a couple weeks ago. So we will have that episode um, coming out. In the fall, that, that's very, very smart. Yeah. You answered the question in a way that tees up season four. Mm-hmm. Very exactly. Good. All right. So lots of lots of things there to add to your reading list, and we will be rebroadcasting our reading list from last summer. If you didn't hear it last summer or want to revisit anything, you can check it out. Um, and if there are topics that uh, our listeners would like to see us take on next year, right? Oh, yeah, we sure. invite yeah. them to send us suggestions. And, yeah, on uh, our on our website, there's a contact form. You can leave us a voicemail. Several folks did leave us voicemails, so those are, are nice to hear as well. Um, but yeah, we're getting ready to go on to summer break. The, the next couple of weeks of the show are going to be a mix of, of rebroadcasts of some of our older episodes, as well as uh, episodes from some other podcasts that we think you all will enjoy. So we'll be back in mid-August uh, with new episodes. Um Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Chris, for all your work right, on the show. Right back at you. And thanks to our team at uh, WPSU, various interns that we've had over the year. Yeah, interns, graduate, graduate assistants. assistants. Yeah, uh, Andy Grant, uh, Mark Stitzer, Craig Johnson, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford. If you listen all the way to the end of every episode, you hear me say them all at the end, but it's nice to just give them a shout out here, too. They really help us with, with many aspects of bringing the show to you guys every week. And so. thanks to the... Uh, supporters of the McCourney Institute for making this all possible. Yeah. Yeah. And to everybody who sent in questions. Jeez, yeah. those, those were some good questions, I thought. Very good and, questions. Uh, you guys, Very smart. Yeah, did, did a good job of answering them. So until well, we, we took out the do this questions. again <laughs> next year. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's, uh, as Chris likes to say, let's bring this one in for a landing. Um, thank you again to all of you for listening and for your questions. And we hope to continue this dialogue into the fall and beyond. So For Democracy Works and the McCourtney Institute, I'm Jenna Spinelli. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.